0: and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracing.
1: And I am Gordon Cohen.
0: And we are back after a brief hiatus due to many, many scheduling difficulties to talk about uh, Midnight Cowboy and the producers steeped in the late 60s cinema
1: here. Now it's 3 p.m. Cowboys.
0: Shucks. Um. Uh, Corwin Heller, where do you want to start? Uh, sad town, New York, or uh, funny, but still sad town, New York?
1: Uh, somewhere in New York.
0: I guess we'll start with Midnight Cowboy. Um, <laughs> For no particular reason. All right, so Midnight Cowboy came out in 1969 and is actually was originally rated X. Now, this is a fun little tidbit. Because before there was really an R rating, it went straight to X. But X-rated films eventually became very, very associated with pornographic films. And eventually the R rating was introduced. And if you look up this movie today on your streaming services, it'll probably say that it's rated R because it got went back to and changed to an R rating to make it, to distinct it from um, porn. And so... This is actually the only X rated film to ever win best picture um, or as far as I know, to even be nominated for it. So fun fact there.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, this is uh, this is not an X rated film by today's standards. Don't know if you would agree, but my goodness, not nearly enough not penetration know that until after I watch it, not really any penetration.
0: There's some assumed, not some, there's there's lots of assumed penetration, but
1: anyway. Correct. But who watches porn for assumed penetration?
0: I think everyone does, but they hope to then see it. Anyway.
1: Hmm. I never thought there'd be a topic I'd want to immediately run away from so quickly <laughs> as both of our
0: porn habits. <laughs> <laughs> what keeps going in what? Um. All right. So 1969's Midnight Cowboy. It was directed by John Schlesinger. It was written for the screen by Waldo Salt, a great name, uh, and based on the novel by James Leo Herlihy. That's a guess. <laughs> it stars Dustin Hoffman, John Voight, and Sylvia Miles. This film had an estimated budget of $3.6 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of just under $55 million. So that's that's a big old success right there.
1: Yes, it is. Uh, even with old timey money,
0: even with old timey money, we, we we know from the jump uh, that is a success. The tagline, oh, this is awful. Tagline, holy shit. Um, the tagline is whatever you hear about Midnight Cowboy is true.
1: Oh yeah, no, that's that's shit.
0: That's just just plain fucking bad. Wow. Okay. Um, Yeesh All right This movie won three Oscars On the back of seven nominations This film won For Best Picture for Jerome Hellman uh, Best Director for John Schlesinger Although he was not present at the awards ceremony And John Voight accepted on his behalf Uh, And it also won for Best Writing Screenplay Based on material from another medium For Waldo Salt It was nominated but did not win For Best Actor in a Leading Role for Dustin Hoffman Best Actor in a Leading Role for John Voight Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Sylvia Miles and Best Film Editing for Hugh A. Robertson who became the first African-American to be nominated for Film Editing. Uh, Yeah, way to go. Uh, This film is about a naive hustler who travels from Texas to New York City to seek personal fortune, finding a new friend in the process. That sounds so um, serene and, and innocent. and Oh boy, is it not? So uh, this was my movie. I'll get it started. So I watched this movie when I was young, as I feel like most of these introductions start. Um, I probably saw this when I was like 12 or 13, which is like just way too young to watch this.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which, again, is just the story of my cinematic upbringing. So anyway, and I remember it being gritty and sad and grimy and depressing. And I really can't say, I probably rewatched this at some point when I was like 16, 17, and I don't think I've seen it since. So it's been a good decade. And I think viewing this movie now, I see it relatively differently. And I I still, I really enjoyed this movie but the lows don't feel nearly as low as I recall. And I think there's a little bit of space in the script for what could really hammer home the depravity of these situations that the movie almost glosses over in certain Mm -hmm. points. And that's not, this again, I'm going to say, like I say, anytime I criticize anything, um, this is a really fucking good movie. I'm not trying to take away from it, but it was just so interesting for me to see I don't, I'm not sure how to dis- to really describe what I'm feeling with this, but it's like you, you know how bad this is. And when you see Rizzo, you really see it. And it's like for some reason, the sterling and pristine presentation of John Voigt contiguously throughout the film, like at no point does he reach a level of destitute of um, Dustin Hoffman's character. That maybe... Mm-hmm keeps the movie from diving too low and and showing a true bottom so to speak but i don't know it, i i still felt the feelings at the end you know when when rizzo dies and and uh in uh, uh, uh john void's arms and all that shit you know it, it 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 still hit me but i i don't know the the feeling of complete despair i actually didn't have this time around which i thought was intriguing what uh, what did you what did you take away from this
1: it's hard to disagree with any of those points um it definitely hit me because this was the first time i've seen it and really it wasn't even the depravity that was like the emotional driver for me in this it was more of the Loneliness that, you know, it's highlighting that it's really trying to drive home about how lonely life can be and how it really does affect your outlook on what you view yourself as. And man, the ending with Rizzo, just the way that ends, you know it's coming, but the way it just so kind of quietly happens, just not in a bang, but a whimper. It really, again, drives that home of like, well, you're off on your own and you got nobody else now. Um, But you're right. It doesn't ever really show how destitute they are. It's like, hey, we have, you know, three dollars to our name. Absolutely. But they tell you that they don't you know, they show them living in squalor. They show them not being able to afford, um, you know, the basic essentials of washing your clothes and brushing your teeth. But at the same time, you don't really feel like they are truly at the end of the ropes because they kind of just keep chugging along. And at no point does anyone ever, you know, get a real job to kind of, avoid that struggle, you know, end that cycle, which at the end of the movie that's kind of his plan. That's what he wants to do. Like he gives up the hustling and just hey, I just want to make an honest buck and be happy and, you know, we'll have a long, happy life together. Boom, 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 boom. But you're right, it doesn't really drive it home in any way.
0: And I I think part of that is that neither character really and that, like, that financial or living situation sense never really declines. John Voigt does when he goes from living out of that motel to living with Rizzo. But I mean, that wasn't, and it's going to sound kind of awful. It's not a colossal decline, or at least it's not like, it's not spent enough time with that you really feel it. Obviously, he goes from living in a motel where he has like a bed and one would presume heat in the winter to living in a place where he's sleeping on a cot with no heat. I I, I got that. Um, But in a larger sense He's still got the boots He's still got the clothes They all look pretty clean He seems very clean cut somehow And from Rizzo's end of it He is living like this when we meet him And he's living like this when the movie ends And mm-hmm. he looks filthy and disgusting when you meet him And he looks filthy and disgusting when the movie ends Like he, he, it's it's a plateau of sorts And you know Obviously, I, th- I think there's really good growth shown in John Voight's character with how he interacts with the business of sex. And I think really what this movie is meant to show, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the matter with it, but I, I think part of what this movie is meant to show is obviously there was a sexual incident that we don't get full detail on, but we get some, you know, I don't know, display of, emotion of, via the sporadic flashback scenes. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that this life as a prostitute is John Voigt in some way attempting to regain power over his sexual identity and over sex. And, you know, via New York finding that to be very difficult and ultimately in some way letting go of that need, you know, mm-hmm. which would really, I think one would say is the ultimate sign of growth from feeling like you're desperately needing something to realizing that maybe you don't actually need it at all. And you can finally let it go. And I, I think that's a, a powerful sentiment. It just comes against the backdrop of, I think is a movie versus is, is a story that has a lot of lacking in the, the, sub parts of his story and the and the b plots there within um what, what what do you think
1: i would definitely agree with that you know it is an interesting way of expressing you know his sexual past with the flashbacks that almost cut in these dream sequences where rizzo's involved there the old man's involved there the people he sees across new york it's not Ever a true flashback in the sense of hey this is you know this is what happened it's well here's a little taste of it but also this isn't the true story this is kind of you know fantasized to an extent it's it's, it's different I don't know if I prefer it I liked it. I liked seeing that, but I don't know if it's something I would have preferred versus what we got.
0: It's, it's interesting because this is also an interesting point in cinema. You know, the sixties was very counterculture heavy with how ideas were being demonstrated. And, you know, with the first examples of kind of like, psychedelia being translated from a drug experience or a lifestyle to being, you know, uh, in some way visually represented. And I think like the hysteria of those scenes is impactful and and works on some level. It's also hard to read them in certain instances. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's to their benefit. Um, Maybe the random stressful anxious frenetic feeling that you get out of that is just exactly what you need and you don't and you can get by on feeling more than um going full detail would provide but i don't know i i can't help but shake the feeling that i mean that's really the emotional heart of the movie that and showing you know like some level of male camaraderie like you know john void very very afraid of being homosexual or doing anything Homosexual um, While also maintaining a platonic male Relationships like there's a lot of that going on too But the main, the main Thing really is that John Boyd is trying to You know Get some autonomy back and It's tough for that to I forgot that was a part of the movie I completely forgot The, the flashbacks To his past in Texas like Not at all was part of My recollection of this movie But really, like, from watching it this time, it was the most important part of the movie. It's the whole movie. But it's not, like, focused on, you know? Corwin, I I do not hear you. Interesting. Now, I
1: I would say it's the most interesting part, for, or not the most interesting, it's the most story-driving part of this film. But i really wouldn't argue it as being a essential part to make this film a film like you can watch this without watching those flashback portions and still get a cohesive storyline you can still enjoy the film you can even consider it a good film you're just missing an entire layer that really is the backbone of this, the entire meaning of what this character development, this character story is meant to be. And that's uh, that's pretty important, I would argue.
0: You know, I, I, I think you're right, because, like, like I mean, you're basically describing my recollection of this movie, which is without the flashbacks. And then I watch this movie again, and I see the flashbacks, and I think to myself, that, that sh- is the movie. It's just not highlighted to the extent that I think I would want. Um and then I think not having Rizzo really be a like Rizzo is furniture in this movie. That's about it. He doesn't really do anything. He helps set up uh John Voigt with that guy in the beginning that ultimately becomes nothing because he like prays to that Jesus thing in his closet and super weird. Um, and then Jesus ain't weird. (laughs) She sure was funky. Um, and and then he like, I guess kind of de facto becomes his pimp. Um, but there's very little of that. There's very little of the business of sex in this. You know, I think there's a total of like four customers. And I mean, how much money he actually squeezed out of those people is questionable.
1: I think it's a very small
0: number. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Well, the first lady, he didn't get anything, uh, no, he lost money on that deal. He did. That's great. He, gave he, gave, her money. he gave her money. I don't think he got much money out of Bob Balaban.
1: Bob um, Balaban. Which one's Bob Balaban? Uh, the the kid from glasses? the movie theater? Yeah. He doesn't get anything from him. Yeah. He, like, storms out.
0: I also did not know that was Bob Balaban um, until I watched That's... it. I was like, holy fuck.
1: I still don't know who that man is.
0: Have you ever watched the show Broad City? I do not. Oh well, he's the he's Alana's dad in Broad City. Oh, Alana, yeah, of course. Um, shout out to Broad City; it's a great show. Everyone should watch it. Um, he got money out of that one dude he just kind of like beat up, who was like totally into it. And I guess he got okay. money from that one girl that he picked up at the party.
1: That was really the only time it actually succeeded in what he was doing. And he he, was
0: just on the precipice of success.
1: And then Rizzo decides to, you know. Well,
0: no, he does succeed.
1: (laughs) What a jerk. Um, But no, he does succeed. He ends up uh, fighting with her. Like playing Scrabble, essentially Scrabble without a board. Never heard of that game before, but it was there. Um, And then they they get it on.
0: Yeah, but she was uh, telling her friends about him. And it uh, was it was, was setting up for repeat customers and, and word of mouth and uh, just didn't just didn't shake it for him.
1: Do you think there's something to be said about him finally reaching a point of success with what he was trying to do in New York City the whole time, only then to kind of reach this point of no, this isn't something I want to do, and decides to kind of change everything. Do you think he needed? to know that he could accomplish this in order to move on to something else? Or is it just merely the, the epiphany moment or kind of the, the coming to moment of, you know, Rats going down to Florida, taking him to Florida where he kind of realizes, hey, this isn't what I want to be doing. Uh,
0: I, I think there's a couple ways to read it because <laughs> I took it as... He left Texas, like I said, to, to gain some type of autonomy, to completely disassociate um, from relationships, cutting all ties. You know, you, you move 2000 miles away from somewhere, you're cutting a lot of ties. And by the end of the movie, he is abandoning a place where he might actually be able to find success and, you know, overcome this uh difficulty that, that he, he's been trying to, to conquer. And instead, he actually chooses a relationship. He he, he now is found some level of connection, whereas the, uh, I guess, sexual assault that he was a victim of in, in Texas disassociated him from, you know, any type of human connection to the point where he goes full bore into his sex work, um, has now come all the way around. And he, he is actively putting some type of human connection, some type of relationship ahead of um, this completely removed and isolated, at least how, how it's presented, um, act of uh, strictly physical intimacy. Like like there's, there's, he's unlocked the next level of intimacy from physical intimacy to emotional intimacy. It's, it's growth. I would think that's what it's about because it doesn't ever take a moment to be like, I did it. I can, I can fuck all the bitches in New York. He just kind of is like, we need to do this. Like, well, let's get you to Florida. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this would have been a good prequel to Weekend at Bernie's?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because then the people that Rizzo kept insulting with homophobic slurs could have come down. And just like a weekend at Bernie's, they could have come down to be like, we gotta kill Rizzo. And uh John Voigt would be like, Well, he's he's alive, like, look <laughs> at him. We're uh, we're using his money to go down to Florida, and, and, and um, it's
1: not like anyone would look at Rizzo and be like, No, that man is dead. Oh no, that's just Rizzo, you know.
0: He doesn't right, look right. much looks a anyway.
1: person when alive.
0: Exactly. Um Shout out to this movie also being where the now constantly tied to generically New York City line of I'm walking here comes from. Um,
1: never, n- never knew up until we started doing this podcast that that was just a fucking crazy taxi driver just trying to run down Dustin Hoffman.
0: Yeah. yeah Ford, so was there. another fun fact for this movie, they did not receive a permit <laughs> to shoot in New York, so they couldn't close any of the streets. So that was just a real taxi driver. Just didn't give a fuck. Oh, God. That's it fucking was funny. At,
1: it was actually Robert De Niro who was filming Taxi Driver at the time, and they that's just true. crossed paths. Yes,
0: that's true. Martin Scorsese I, was in the back seat of that, of that taxi. <laughs> Scorsese in and up.
1: Scorsese was in that cab. Recognized Dustin, Dustin Hoffman was like, floor it.
0: Go 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 for your character. Yeah, I choose to believe this is true. <laughs> um Yeah, I I I I really don't have too much So let me let me ask you this then since we spent a lot of time talking about I, I I'd say some of the uh, cons I guess of this movie. Did you enjoy it?
1: I, hmm. I
0: know we're going to give it I, a rating, but I want to ask. Yes.
1: I liked it. I enjoyed the vast majority of this film, but I won't go so far as to say at the end of it, falling asleep, you know, right after watching it, I was like, man, I enjoyed this a lot. This was great. I love this. It was a lot more of a fuck. That's really sad. Oh no. But yes, overall, I enjoyed this.
0: I, I would say I've, I enjoyed this as well, but I'm not sure how often I'm going to revisit it now this time. Because prior it was, oh boy, that movie is so sad. And now it's still like, yeah, that movie is sad, but I'm also not sure what more I can squeeze from it. Like I'm, I, this is going to be a movie I watch again in like another decade because it'll be like, I haven't watched that in 20 years, 10 mm-hmm. years. I know what a decade is. Um, and Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't think I'm going to... I, I'm not sure how much I have just left to squeeze out of this at this at this point in time maybe I need to hit rock bottom for to have some additional meeting <laughs> all right let's uh, let's pivot into ratings and reviews then so um this was my movie I'll start uh, we covered a lot of... I actually covered a lot of ground on this which I have to say I'm proud of us for we stayed very on on focus and on target here uh, very rare I, I am shocked <laughs> I'm genuinely shocked and proud of us uh I am going to give this so I'm caught between a four and a four and a half. And the reason I'm caught is because this would have such an impact. I know this would have such an impact on me if I saw this in 1969. And that's a weird reason to be caught between giving it a four and a half and a four. So I'm going to give it a four because that doesn't make any sense. But like, Hmm. I, I can see how impactful this movie must've been on. I mean, in one aspect, Male relationships, platonically, uh, sex and sex work, and, and and you know body autonomy, but because uh, you know coming out in sixty nine, like it's still a pretty, pretty conservative time overall. Even though the counterculture was growing within the youth movement, but um, now I saw this movie as a as, as a as a person in you know the two thousands. I should stick to a review that encapsulates that. So I'm going to have it at a four.
1: I was with you. In the start, well, I shouldn't say that like I'm going to disagree, but I had the same dilemma of, is this a four or four and a half? If Jodie Foster doing her sex work role from Taxi Driver made a cameo, this would definitely be a four and a half. But I will say I can still, it's not like it's, you know, a 1940s or 50s movie where it's incredibly difficult for me to kind of put myself inside that and, and relate and have that same level of um effect on me like i i I cannot watch a 1945 film of the same storyline and connect on it just because of the the way films were shot because of the you know everything involved that actually doesn't make a film a film um that just kind of is always it for me But 1969, I feel like, is recent enough culture-wise, recent enough uh, film technique-wise, and the fact that I can recognize the actors enough to view them as, you know, modern-day people, and to some extent. I can connect with it enough to give it the full four and a half.
0: Right on. It's very mature of you, Corwin.
1: I'm doing good with words today. I'm, You're hey buddy,
0: don't don't sell yourself short. You're just straight up killing it out there, home slice.
1: I do what I can. I do what I can.
0: All right. Uh, well then let's turn this over to our second movie of the day. And that is 1967's The Producers, um, which was written and directed by Mel Brooks. It stars Zero Mastel, which is just an amazing, amazing stage name. Oh. Well, it's his real name, but still. Um, anyway, actually, no, it's not his. His, well, his birth name is Samuel Joel Mustell but still, Zero is a great stage name. Um, I need to
1: cut in before you even continue and just, I can't hold back any farther. Every time I watch Zero Mostel, I am blown away by how much I love Zero Mostel.
0: He's amazing, isn't he? Uh,
1: he, like, he is so recognizable. Of course, I'm going to, you know, know who he is. I'm going to be like, oh, that's Zero. Like, that's great. But then... Somehow, every time it's like, this is just one of the best act. Like, how do I not remember his acting skill and only remember his eyes?
0: I know. Oh, God. Him and this and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum are just two movies I could rewatch endlessly just for his reaction to everything.
1: I have just changed my movie pick for next week because I have not seen that since high school. Where we watched it in acting or in Latin class.
0: It is it is better than you remember. And I'm sure you remember it being good. And it's still better than you remember. It's such it a
1: good is, movie. It is not a movie I have thought about since 2014, 2015. But my goodness, I just got a wave of like, now that's a funny movie.
0: It's so much fun, and Zero is perfect in it. So all right, oh. all right, all right. We'll save it for 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 next week. All right, so. It stars, this movie, the producers, stars Zero Mostel, Gene Wilder and Dick Sean as LSD Lorenzo Saint-Dubois. Just a fucking I love this fucking movie.
1: Um, I wish that guy became a, a serious actor, like a right? well-known actor.
0: Um, this movie had an estimated budget of $941,000 and a worldwide gross of $375,000? Uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. Um, All right, so it had a box office of 1.6 million. So that's actually not nearly as successful as you think, but I wonder when the cutoff is for that because it's had many stage adaptations now and several runs on Broadway. But anyway, who knows? Uh, This movie, uh, it's tagline. That's a long tagline. All right, brace yourselves. (laughs) This is a long one.
1: I I love that you never know the taglines until you pull them up. I never do. Always have a reaction.
0: All right. Uh, once upon a time, there was a uh, was a Broadway producer who met a creative but timid accountant together. They concocted the most outrageous million dollar scheme in the annals of showbiz. That's the tagline. Yeah, fuck that. up. Uh, that's, that's just not good. Um, this film won an Oscar. That's right, folks. Uh, on the back of two nominations, it won for Best Writing Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen from Mel Brooks and uh, was nominated nominated for Best Actor and Supporting Role for Gene Wilder. Uh, Corwin, how, oh, hold on, uh, last thing. The film is about a stage play producer who devises a plan to make money by producing a surefire flop. Corwin Heller, this was your pick. Why don't you tell me about it? This was excellent
1: in so many ways I kind of didn't expect it I was honestly expecting a very how should I say you know old-fashioned you know Gene Wilder heavy um, film where he really was nothing more than a side character to Zero Mostel and I don't mind it at all I think he's genuinely an excellent excellent um, what am I thinking of uh, supporting actor right um, and the storyline is something that I really never could have predicted I know it's about the producers I know it's about Hollywood producers those are the only two things I knew about it coming in other than it being a uh, Gene Wilder film fraud being committed by purposely making the worst play possible so they choose to make a dramatic just nationalist loving propaganda piece about how great hitler is and somehow accidentally creating one of the funniest shows on broadway is just how do you sit in a room and start putting a pen to paper and come up with that actually i could kind of see that it's a very
0: less mind you i want to just jump in here and add less than 25 years after the holocaust
1: wow yeah that's it's definitely something i thought about like oh wow that's a you know it's really funny how that is just such a more um God damn, words have completely failed me like just seconds after saying, hey, this is doing great. But how much more impactful that would have been in 1966?
0: 67.
1: 67, sure. But regardless, it's still just I'm glad it's something that hasn't kind of died away, but you appreciate it just as much, but you can never get to the point of hysteria that must have come in the theater when this was first coming out
0: oh my god yeah i I mean when they do the opening dance number of the show even though you know what the play is about it is still startling to see Mm -hmm. like us as the viewer like the first time i saw this i remember distinctly having the exact same reaction as the crowd the first time that first song starts because it is taken so seriously and done with all the pomp, circumstance and and seriousness of a real Broadway play and it is like literally the Gestapo. <laughs> oh man, this movie is nuts.
1: It's funny how you're watching the performance for the first time and at least for me, I was watching it and was like, man, that's a premise that could be such great satire but isn't and then immediately having it jump into exactly what you would want it to be is just perfect this is this is such a great comedy
0: so i i've listened to Mel i wish
1: i chose to watch this after midnight cowboy not before <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yeah definitely the wrong wrong order of operations there um well, so I, I've heard Mel Brooks talk about this movie a few times because obviously this is the movie that really put him on the map. Uh, he had been in Hollywood for a while at this point. He'd worked on Sid Caesar's show shows and all that type of stuff. And, um, you know, he'd already gotten together with Ann Bancroft, that devil. Hmm. Uh, and but this is the movie that put him on the map and I heard him talk about getting it made. And he apparently, first it was going to be a book and then it brings it to a publishing house. And they're like, this is not a book. You got songs in here that doesn't play on paper. It might, maybe it's a play. And so Mel Brooks brought it to a, uh, a a play producer. And the guy was like, it's, 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 it's not a play. You got too many sets. It's a complicated series of changes. Directionally, it'll be a nightmare. It's not a play. Maybe it's a movie. Brings it to a movie studio. And then has a chore of a time getting it made ends up obviously becoming a movie, um, has a chore of time getting it made because of the premise of the movie, of the, of the play in, within, the, within the show. And it really is wild. Because mm-hmm. not only is there the financial scheme of it, which by the time you get into the actual play bit, you almost forget that that's what the point is. Um, it gets brought up as this hypothetical by Mr. Leo Bloom as he, he shouts his way through that scene and then once they get into the nuts and bolts of like you know picking out actors and picking a director and 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 choosing a screenplay you almost forget that like oh that's right there's a fuck ton of old lady money on the line here um and then you get into the play and it's just fucking wild and so what do you think cuz this is something i've i've heard many a jews talk about before what do you think makes uh, holocaust satire effective because there's an effective way of doing it and there is an ineffective way of doing it and obviously this movie has been very effective because jewish people love this movie uh and it was made by a jew and it's still around and very popular over 50 years later so like, where do you think that comes from in this
1: I think it's just the absolute ludicrous nature of it and how they treat it as basically what it is, something that's chosen to be utterly unsupportable, just unwatchable, just the absolute worst possible thing you could think of. And in the process of showing that, basically having it be shown as what it is, as the most outrageous, just ridiculous stance and beliefs and just history that you could express it as. So I think that's really the only major thing for me.
0: So I I was thinking about this, uh, especially a lot this past week, um, because Norm MacDonald died, Mm. who was one of my favorite comedians.
1: Um, Your favorite comedian's favorite comedian.
0: Oh my god! I I like Dan and I, who no one on this show knows, but Corbin knows. Uh, Dan and I would like watch clips of his show for fucking hours. Um, just when we would like hang out, like it was it was a pastime of ours. Fucking love. Uh, what the first time I saw Norm was on um, uh, The Roast of Bob Saget, and I was a fucking I was a fan of his ever since. And that shit must have come out when I was like 13, 14. Um, love Norm, and what Norm was famous for, it in part anyway, was taking really horrific events and making you laugh at them. And he did this, I mean, he literally cost him his job at SNL when it comes to OJ Simpson. Um, he did this for the entirety of the remainder of his career for 9-11. Um, and uh, there's also a great clip of him doing this to Jon Stewart mm-hmm. right after um, Steve Irwin died. And John, to the point that John Stewart is literally saying, like, through tears of laughter, Norm, please don't make me laugh at this.
1: (laughs) The favorite that I saw was him on The View just refusing to stop a discussion about Bill Clinton killing a guy.
0: (laughs) And. He was so good at it, and as bizarre as it sounds, but Norm Macdonald talking and making jokes about 9/11 really helped me get over that. You know, and I wasn't even in New York at the time. I'm not going to claim anything like from that or anything, but like it was—he had such a way with it. And I think, because I've been thinking a lot about it, like what made—and it's not like he was telling complicated jokes, you know. Mm -hmm. It it was his manner of delivery, and I—and it reminds me a lot of this movie. Just to tie it all back. Because what Norm, I think, really did for the most part was let there be a feeling of, oh, fuck. You know, here is a sensitive topic 9 11 or uh, Steve Irwin dying or OJ's murders. And that tension must resolve in some way, musically. A, uh, a major seventh wants to go become that first maybe. It, it wants it. You hear it and you know it wants it. Uh, and there's really, I think, only two ways that emotion can break. It can break towards anger which is what the stars of the producers want because then that means the movie will flop or it can become comedy. But there has to be that tension. You know? And what Norm would do was he would introduce that tension. And then to the point where obviously, you know, he's a funny guy. So there might be a proclivity towards, you know, leaning towards towards the laughter anyway. But the second he says something slightly, slightly jokey, that that tension just wants to go right into laughter because you have to release it somehow. And I think this movie does the same thing. You know, like you see, I mean, God, they start can can high stepping in this shit. <laughs> it's ridiculous. They form swastikas and dance in a circle. It's ridiculous. And that tension just resolves perfectly into fits of laughter over how ludicrous it is, but how seriously it takes itself. And I think it's fucking perfect for that shit.
1: Completely agree. Completely agree. And, Just like Norm McDonald, I think Mel Gibson has absolutely messed Yeah, sorry, geez. (laughs) Uh definitely a guy who can be uh a discussion topic of discussion for um Norm. Uh regardless. Mel Brooks, did I get that one right? Yes. Okay. Half a second of genuine uh second thought. Um, he's so good at it. So many films that he does. I mean. Granted, there's plenty where this isn't his focus. This isn't his goal, the way Norm kind of, you know, used this for almost all of his jokes. But he just shows it time and time again how good he blazing is. Blazing saddles. Just, exactly. That's the first thing I think of. I think of it over and over, like, just trying to think of great examples. And it's just his blazing saddles, blazing saddles, blazing saddles. Because it's it's the same exact thing.
0: Right, I mean, it was, what, what this is for Nazis blazing saddles is for the Klan, you know? Um, yeah, and yep. Yeah, and what, what's great about this movie and its employment of, you know, Nazi iconography and making jokes about that stuff is that it is also, in a manner of speaking, secondary to the main plot, which is we need this thing to flop. And that one adds the, the level of, um, you know, the non-seriousness of the intention. Like we're not um, trying to promote this. We, we are, we're using Hitler uh, uh, for profit. (laughs) We're we're ridiculing him to, to um, achieve an end. Really this is all in spite. We're, we are taking him so unseriously that we think no one else will take him seriously to the point that no one's going to want to, to see this. No one's going to want to be involved in this. And adding behind that, the idea that this is all bullshit. It's all bullshit. They're going into all these meetings just to pick the worst person they can pick to get out of there. It's all bullshit. And it's fucking, it's just hilarious to see like, like the contrast between um, Zero Mistel and uh, whichever one of the ones I'm trying to think of. Who am I thinking of? Uh, Gene Wilder. Because you. Gene's yep. like, is this the right guy? Is this the right guy? And Zero like, he, is like, is it bad? Then it's the right thing. It's bad. Let's go. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it's, it's wonderful.
1: Uh, and just the complete inability to make the wrong choices correctly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that that's really the shit of it, isn't it? You know, they they went so far over the top that the satire looped back around. <laughs> and and uh or the the seriousness, I don't know, looped back around from being uh s- straight to satire. It's amazing.
1: Much like fascism itself. It is a circle. Yeah, baby. Yeah, politics. Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: Um I'm not sure if I have any grand takeaways from this really.
1: Um, yeah, it's really just an enjoyable movie. There's really nothing else that you need to know about it.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of what else I really have to say. Zero Mustel, uh fucking a bunch of of old ladies to to get their money is um simultaneously hilarious and also uh, more sad than Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, at least those, you know, those women are paying for it and getting it
0: handsomely, apparently.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, fun, fun, fun. Yeah, zero must tell. Very good.
0: Uh, all right, I guess uh four and, four and a half. I'm giving this a five, man. I'm giving this a straight up five. Love it
1: uh i feel like if i've it and got to enjoy little things that i missed i could absolutely see that bumping up to a five because again that's something that gene wilder does so well of just layering things on top of each other at least i re- think so regardless i would not be surprised if the next time i watch it i feel it's a five
0: it's it's a fucking blast it's an absolute blast Oh, God, when Zero Mistal rips off the cardboard belt and just tears it in half, and you're just like, why were you even wearing this?
1: Like, Yeah, like, can you just go make another? Like, what's the point? Like, I love it.
0: Why aren't you just shoplifting or buying the right pants? Yeah. Like, so many Ooh. other questions.
1: How would you feel about a mashup of Joe, uh, Joe Buck Getting off the bus in the wrong town and becoming the sheriff.
0: In Blazing Saddles? Yeah. Um, would he still be trying to fuck everybody? Absolutely. Then pretty good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You don't just change who Joe Buck is.
0: No, no, no. He's 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 gotta be trying to slam. If there's one thing Joe Buck knows, it's ass. All right, yeah. all right. Let's get to uh, next week's picks. Uh, Corwin Heller, what do you want to watch?
1: Already made my pick. You were there. Locking it in. Locking it in.
0: All right, we're locking zero,
1: in. Zero.
0: Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, so I I am debating with my so I I watched uh. John Cassavetes movie the other day. I watched um, A Woman Under the Influence and I feel like I need to watch it again and then talk about it. So uh, that's what I'm going to pick. We're going to watch. I'm going to pick A Woman Under the Influence um, Okay. because I, I need more from that.
1: <laughs> Touche. I've yeah. never heard of it.
0: Oh, uh, John Cassavetes, baby! As Johnny yeah. Cassavetes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, all right. So that's 1966's. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum, which you can find on Amazon Prime, and 1974's. A woman under the influence, which you can find on HBO Max. Check them out before we, I guess, record next week. Uh, if you'd like to follow the show, you can do so at uh, Big Screen Juice. Uh, And if you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at CorwinHell. If you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Tracy. If you would like to send emails to the show, you can do so at JuicedTheBigScreen at at gmail.com. And until next week, y'all have a good one.
1: Bye.